My mind is always pinging on the last verse from the psalm that we read today. Oh, taste. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. It's interesting that it tells us to taste and see, um, but it's, it's fleshy. It's embodied. It's a way of knowing that we don't normally think of knowing. It's of savoring. And um, it's, it's, it's surprising to me how just naturally embodied the Bible is. It's, it's not all happening up here. It's, it's what's happening in our bodies a lot of the time. And, and Jesus, when he tells parables, they're, they're embodied parables. He doesn't make the gospel an abstraction. And all of Luke 15, which is a, a tale of three parties, is a response by Jesus to an accusation made by a bunch of Pharisees. Luke 15, 1 and 2 says, and this is where we'll be spending our time today, Luke 15, 11 through 32, if you can turn to it. Luke, but we're going to start at the beginning. Luke 15, 1 and 2 says, Now the tax collectors and sinners were drawing near to him, Jesus, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. Tax collectors were Jewish traitors, of course, and thieves. Nobody liked them. They cheated and they lied professionally, and they were just bad. And everyone knew it. Then sinners. The term doesn't necessarily mean sinners in the sense that of those who are and those who aren't. The name is used for flagrant, openly immoral people. People everyone knows that way. That's their identity. And what follows for the next 30 or so verses are three parables of God's literal passion for the lost, which Jesus will show most clearly on the cross, and his joy at their finding. Couldn't have sung a better song as an introduction to that gospel reading today than Amazing Grace. And I'm pretty sure you know these stories well. A man has a hundred sheep and loses one. So he leaves 99 sheep in the open country, which is kind of a risky move and goes after the one that's lost. A woman has 10 silver coins and loses one. So she lights a lamp and sweeps the house and seeks that coin with everything she's got. And then there's the lost son, the prodigal. All three stories have similar conclusions. Found sheep, party. Found coin, party. Found son? Well, we read it today. Party. God really likes to party. The only thing that's substantively different about the parable of the lost son, who represents the tax collectors and the sinners, is that the misery of his lostness is spelled out. The nature of his repentance is spelled out, and the lavish enthusiasm of the father is spelled out more fully 
than in the other two parables. And while everyone else in this story is delighted, the lavish enthusiasm of the father creates a huge problem for one person, the older brother, who represents the Pharisees themselves, who hadn't squandered half his father's life savings on debauched living. Thank you very much. The thing is, if you read with care the response of the father to his older son's anger, you read Jesus' tenderest words to the Pharisees recorded in the Gospels. And I find this super encouraging because as I read and studied and thought about this passage this week, I began seeing myself more and more in the older brother, the Pharisees in this parable. Not because I'm particularly moralistic or legalistic or condescending or prideful or judgmental, the negative attributes we generally ascribe to the Pharisees, although candidly, I can at times be any or all of these things. Though I hope they're not descriptors you'd use for me. Nor am I even slightly offended by the idea that God genuinely and deeply loves really immoral people. All of those things, all of those things are just symptoms of a much deeper kind of malignancy I believe lies underneath all of them. Two weeks ago, when we read Jesus' lament over Jerusalem, I talked about and I hope showed God's consistent desire throughout Scripture to partner with us. Not a partnership, a noun, as much as partnering, a verb, a union that is robust and active, a union where relationship is always the highest priority, where there's deep joy for both simply by being in the presence of the other. And if we were to come to joy, with joy to the resurrection, the goal of Lent, experiencing, experiencing the presence of God before and beyond any of the doing for God is key. There was more to it than that, but that was the gist. I probably should have just preached that. Last week, we, we considered Moses at the burning bush, where the very first thing that God offers to Moses is his presence. I will be with you. Riffing on architect Louis Sullivan's statement that form ever follows function, I posited that all throughout scripture, even under the law, producing ever follows presence. In other words, producing, doing for God, must always and only flow from being present with God. This was true in the beginning. God partnering with humanity as co-regents in stewarding his creation. And it will be true in eternity, in a new heavens and a new earth. It's been true for all time. This pattern, producing ever following presence, is a really easy thing for us to give assent to. We can shake our head, yes, but a vastly harder thing for us to live out. We've basically forgotten the deeper truth that God's desire for us is something before and beyond any of the doing. 
He wants us. He wants our undivided attention. And God wants us to, to give us the gift of knowing and discernment and of being accepted and loved unconditionally to shower us with his love. These are the things God wants to give us first before any of the doing. Grace, of course, is not opposed to effort. It's opposed to earning. But as evangelicals, we are so schooled in what I've come to know as a kind of toxic activism that it's become part of our DNA. We're super busy, but our, being does, our, our doing doesn't flow naturally from the experience of God's presence. The doing is an end in itself. I don't know if you guys remember this bumper sticker from several years ago. I haven't seen it in a long time. Jesus is coming again. Look busy. <laughs> Which is kind of how I grew up. In our hallway at home, in our whole house, there was only one needle point, and it was in the hallway. And it said this, only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Which beyond being suspect eschatology, right, is to my mind, is just really a more poetic and 19th century way of saying what's on that bumper sticker. Jesus is coming again. Look busy. It's primarily about the doing. And this is at its core, the fundamental problem with Pharisees. They're doers. And although they're normally, and not without some cause, castigated, a lot of the stuff they do is good. They put supreme effort into following the law, which in the Old Testament was literally never a bad thing. The thing is for them, keeping the law was the thing. It was producing over presence. They'd forgotten the deeper truth that God's desire for them was something before and beyond any of the doing. He wanted them for himself. And he wanted to give himself relationally fully to them. They were doing all the stuff, but the relationship was broken. And that's what Jesus was telling them in this parable. The anger of the older brother at the younger brother, though real, was only symptomatic of a much deeper problem. And you can see just how real his anger was. It, he won't acknowledge his, him, his brother as his brother or call him by name. In verse 30, he calls him only this son of yours who devoured your property with prostitutes. But verse 29 is really the key to seeing the deeper problem. The older brother says, look, for so many years I have been serving you and I have never neglected a command of yours. And yet you've never given me a party. And with that one sentence, Jesus tells us two things about what's actually going on here. What's wrong with the relationship? Number one is the word serving because it's the language of slave and master. At the Naval Academy, 
First year students are called plebes. This comes from the word plebeian. And a lot of people think that it means slave, but it does not. Uh, Acts 4.13, it's a word that's used for Peter and John when they appear before the council in Jerusalem. It's a word that means uneducated and common, which is pretty much true of every first year college student. The United States Air Force Academy, however, calls their first year students doulies, which comes from the word doulos, which means slave. And that's the word this son uses for serving, is a form of that word. So he's not just saying, I've served you, but rather, I've served you, master. Think about what his father had to be feeling in that moment. Like, like why are you even using this language? What are you, why are you talking this way? Why are you looking at me like that? You know I'm not that way. Why have you turned our relationship into a slave-master relationship? I am your father. There must have been tremendous sadness and heartbreak in the father at that moment. The other telling thing is in that same sentence. I've never neglected one of your commandments. It's as if he's saying, that's our relationship. You're a command giver, I'm a command doer. And by the way, I measured up, he didn't. That's the relationship, a slave, a master, and commandments. And that's all wrong. You're supposed to have a son and unconditional love and faith. I'm so glad I can be with my father. I love being at the table with him every night. He's so wise, so strong, so generous, so kind. That is not what is happening here. Instead, it's you give commands and I keep them. I've worked and I've worked and I've worked. Why aren't you paying up? I'm not sure what your relationship was with your father. I know for some of you it was not good. But what's happening here is messed up. That's not what sons and fathers are about, work and reward. And I'm sorry if yours was. The relationship between father and son, God the Father and the Pharisees, is deeply broken. And what does the father say to all this? Five really remarkable things. And if you're a recovering older brother, prepare to be loved by Jesus, who's representing the Father. He's not just eating with tax collectors and sinners. He's actually loving Pharisees. And the first way the Father loves them is shown in Luke 15, 28. His Father came out to him. I mean, this, this son is angry, really anger, angry. And I think if I were the father throwing a party for a found son and his older brother, an adult was out on the porch throwing a tantrum, that would make me angry, too. Angry at him. Probably really angry. And I'd probably leave him out there to stew. No way I'm going to let him ruin the whole thing. But that's not what the father in this parable does. He comes out. This is the same thing he did with the younger brother, right? He, he got on the road, he ran, and he hugged him. A remarkably undignified thing to do in that culture. Here, the son's on the porch, angry, refusing to come in, probably standing there with his arms crossed. And the father comes out to him. He's present. 
He just comes out and meets him there where he is, even in his anger. One of the things that I'm most profoundly discovering about God and my practice of silence and solitude during Lent this year is that God actually does come out to us. He comes and meets us in whatever space we give him. If it's five minutes, if it's a half hour, if it's 30 seconds, that's what the nature of the Father is. Secondly, the Father entreats the Son. In verse 28 near the end, he says, it says, his Father came out and began entreating him. I can't help but think that Jesus chose that word precisely in distinction to commanding because the older brother had said, I, I, I've kept all your commandments. At, that, at the point where he has every right to command him, the father, you get in there and show some respect for your brother and for me. Instead, he's saying, in this family, we forgive. Come, join us. He doesn't command. He entreats. Now, just to let you feel the force of that, Paul wrote in Philemon 8, though I have confidence in Christ to command you to do what is proper, yet for love's sake, I entreat you. It's exactly the same word, for love's sake. I will not command in this moment. I will entreat. I will woo. I will invite. I will long and ache and yearn and plead. I will not command at this moment. Parents get this. We, we want our kids to behave, but if our primary mindset is I have a right, I have authority, I have command, there should be conformity to the commandment in response to the authority. That structure is master-slave. And it's the weakest kind of leadership. The father in the parable didn't do it because he's not simply after right external behavior. He's after right relationship. Number three, the father speaks incredibly tenderly to the son. He calls him child. In the ESV, we kind of miss this because it simply says son in verse 31. Verse 31 he said to him, son, which my youngest son tells me when I say that, son, I'm about to get condescending. I'm about to put him in his place. But in Greek, it's, it isn't the same word as the word for son, just one verse before, where he says, when this son of yours came home, the word is technon, little child. I've loved so much uh, our times together in our small group, looking at scripture, not from a kind of technical, exegetical standpoint, but how it impacts us. And I have been for a couple of weeks now, every day, meditating on 1 John 3, 1. Behold, what manner of love the Father has given to us that we should be called the children of God. This is the word technon. Think about your children, what you would do for them, how you long for them. It's not a belittling thing either. He's not saying you're acting like a baby. It's totally not the tone of this moment. I think he's saying something like, my boy, I love you so much. I can't 
I can remember you in diapers. I can remember you at five. I can remember you at 15 at all the games. Come on, come in. We want this family to be whole, right? That's much more the tone here in this passage. So the fourth loving thing that he says to him in verse 31 is, you are always with me. The problem is that the older son didn't value that. The younger son had discovered it the hard way. God, if I could just be home with my father, if I could just be home with him, I mean, even as a servant, if I could just be home with the one who cares more about me than anyone in the world, I'd give everything just to be with my father. But the deepest void in the brother's heart is that he lived in the house with his father and he found it unsatisfying. He lived with all the privileges of the elder brother, ate with the father every night, was the heir of everything, and he found no joy in it. He didn't love being with him. Finally, the last loving thing the father says to his son is, all that is mine is yours. I imagine at this point, Jesus is looking right over the heads of the tax collectors and sinners and making eye contact with me and the other Pharisees, staring us right in the face. And he's saying, everything I have is yours and I want you to have it. That's an inheritance. There's an inheritance here for a child, but not a slave. And the inheritance isn't stuff. It's the presence of the Father himself. Psalm 1611 says, In your presence there is fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures evermore. That's the inheritance. And that what, that's what God wants to give us first, before any of the doing. I realize you've heard this a lot from me over the last three weeks because it's a drum I've been pretty consistently beating. But this is one of the reasons that I am so thankful for the gift of Lent and its call to the practice of fundamental Christian disciplines. It's 40 days in which we can experiment with disciplines that form us in particular ways to help us experience the love and presence of God. We don't think of Lent like beating our head on a wall. We, we do it because it feels so good when we stop on Easter. We do it so that we come with joy to the resurrection. And as you know, I've been, uh, I've been experimenting more than anything this Lent with the disciplines of silence and solitude. If you're like me, your life is like a jar of river water, all shaken up. And we just have to be still long enough for the sediment to settle and the water to clear because there is a way of knowing, a way of hearing God's voice, a way of experiencing God's presence that can only come in stillness. We have to be quiet enough to hear the Holy Spirit. The scriptures are clear that no one knows the mind of God. The only one who knows the mind of God is the Spirit of God. And so if we are not hearing the Holy Spirit, we cannot know the mind of God. But you must be quiet. You must let some of the settlement in your soul settle for you to know the difference between your own mind, your own thoughts, your own culture, 
and what it is that God is actually saying to you deep inside. It's also the way we begin to know ourselves in God beyond all the doing, the way we experience ourselves to be loved beyond anything that we do. And I found that as I've been developing this habit, it's gotten easier and more joyful. And the sediment in my soul has begun to settle more and more. To switch metaphors, do you know when the best time to plant a tree is? <laughs> hundred years ago or today. In other words, never too late. You can start today. So if you have not been experiencing the presence of, of God, I, I, I do, I put a little uh, primer in the bulletin last week and I've got some back on the table just as a little practice to get us practicing a little silence and solitude every day. But doing, it can grow out of that, of course, and it always does because God is always doing good things in and through us, but it must begin with presence. I think one of the most interesting things here in this parable is that Jesus doesn't resolve the story. He certainly doesn't say, and they lived happily ever after. He leaves a lot of unanswered questions and they just kind of hang there. I mean, what did the son say? What did he do? Did it work? Did he join the party? Did he finally find joy in the father's presence? Well, we know that the vast majority of Pharisees didn't. Will you? In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.